Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Uh, let's get together and read Joshua 1, 10 through 18, and then we'll pray. Here we go. Verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray together. Lord, we come now together as we continue from one time of worship to another, as we proclaim Jesus Christ, as we share your word with one another for the uplifting of our own hearts to praise you, for you are the ultimate giver of life. We praise you, Jesus, for all that you've done to us as we remember and sing these songs to you, but then to one another as we preach the truth. Lord, that the wrath of God was satisfied because Jesus Christ gave his life. We glory in the cross this morning, and we thank you for that. We recognize that without it, Father, we are lost, completely lost, depraved in our sin and rebellion against you. Because of your love for us, God, because of your great sacrifice, you have called a people to yourself to bring you honor and glory. So we pray this morning that we would take those truths, remind ourselves of those things, and come humbly to hear the word. I pray that you would work in each life here. Those who are not believers, Lord, would you open their eyes to reveal Jesus Christ to them as the sweetest, most wonderful thing in the world so they might have life. And to us as believers, that Lord, you would open our hearts to believe and to repent of our sin and to trust you again and again and again. We thank you for this time, and we ask that your spirit would be at work in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last two weeks, we started into the book of Joshua. We started in chapter 1. We looked at the opening speech in Joshua, the first nine verses. It's really the preamble to the whole book. It helps us introduce the content and then the direction of where this book is going to go. 
it showed us that Joshua and the people were to be successful, to have great success if they were to follow what God told them in the law of Moses. And the fact that the opening speech is actually from God himself and the whole thing has to do with covenant faithfulness shows us that this is not just a human endeavor. It's not just a human mission to go in and they need some space to spread out so they're going to go into this. Rather, the whole book of Joshua is found in the context of an ever-present hand of God, his gracious work among his people to shape what he is doing in history. In other words, the book of Joshua is all about him, not about Joshua, the person. Today we move from God talking to Joshua to Joshua talking to the officers and the eastern tribes. In chapter 1, there are four main things that happen. Last week and the week before, we covered one main thing, which was the speech of God at the beginning, that preamble that we just talked about. Today, we'll cover the next three things that happen in the chapter. In verses 10 through 11, Joshua commands the officers to command the people to prepare for entering the promised land. In 12 through 15, Joshua commands the eastern tribes to fulfill their obligation. In 16 through 18, the eastern tribes respond to Joshua's command. With all of the detail that we've been discussing and working through, and all this is so important, it's tempting to forget that this is actually a story, that this is actually a narrative. We've talked a lot about the character of God and what the people are supposed to do in response to that, and a lot of different important points for us to hammer home. But I think it's important for us to also remember that this is a story, and that's partly on me. Last week I gave you a Bible reading tip, if you remember that. When you get to language of someone actually speaking, when someone's put their words in quotation marks, we're to slow down and read them and pay attention to what's going on. Well, if you noticed in chapter one, almost the whole thing is slow down and pay attention in in quotation marks. There are four speeches right here from the beginning. What I'd like to do for you is actually read the whole chapter without the speeches, and you'll see how how small this is in one sense. So just bear with me. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and then he gives him a speech. Verse 10, and Joshua commanded the officers of the people, and then we have a speech. Verse 12, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, then we have a speech. And they answered, verse 16, Joshua, speech. That's it. That's the whole chapter. It's speech after speech after speech. Chapter 1 has very little stuff happening in it. It's a lot of really important discussion, though. In chapter 2, we'll immediately jump into some stuff that starts rolling the ball down the hill. We'll see that the spies go into the land. They go to Rahab's house. We'll see things happening. But for now, especially it's our tendency with the microwave generation where we just want quick, 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 move to the next thing. It's easy for us to get distracted and want to go to the next thing and jump into the next thing. Don't. Remember what I said, this is important. When they slow down and give us speech, we need to pay attention. So as as boring as it may seem to slow way down, we've got to get this. Don't allow our culture and the way that we want things to work to just, sorry about that, for us to just throw this off as unimportant and hope to get to the next part of the story. It's vitally important for us to understand what the narrator is trying to do as he's opening up this book. So in verse 10 and 11, we have a simple speech. It's straightforward. 
Joshua is talking to the officers of the people. Now, who are these officers of the people? They're not military commanders. We're talking probably more in the civilian ranks, uh, administrative commanders or those that held some sort of office. Specifically, this title is the one that we found was appointed in Numbers 11, when Moses, when God tells Moses to get 70 men and make them elders and officers. That's this type of a group. They're the ones that are going to be doing this within the people's ranks. He tells them this, pass through or go through the midst of the camp and command the people. Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take the possession of the land that the Lord God is giving you to possess. Anyone notice this? Joshua tells them the first thing to do is to go through the midst of the camp. That's an interesting detail. Like, why wouldn't he just say, go tell the people this thing? Instead, he says, go through. Why would he do that? The word he uses here, this idea of pass through or go through, is the same word that we find back in verse 2 in the speech that God gave to Joshua when he tells him, arise, go over the Jordan. This idea of go or pass through is the same one that's being used there. And if you continue on, you'll see in the rest of the verse, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan. Same word again. It's not an accident that he would use the same word. And it's not an accident that he would point out to them that they need to go through the camp as though they're continuing on that verb that God gave to him to do. This is Joshua doing exactly what God told him to do, even in his approach in doing it. He's responding to God's divine command, his divine speech, and he's not missing a beat here. Look at the way that he relates his command back to the officers from God's original command. If you see this, in the final phrase, he says, go to take possession of the land that, your, that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Those are God's words. Those are God's details. And so what we find him doing is actually relaying God's command to the people. These two verses, they kind of move the story along a little bit. But they explain to them that the people need to prepare for the provisions, to go into the land, to be prepared. But we can't miss the fact of how the author sets this up. He's trying to make sure we get the fact that they are preparing for more than just that. After God's speech to, to Joshua in 2 through 9, we would expect Joshua to come back and say, Yes, Lord, I will obey. I will do what you've told me to do. That, that would be a normal response for someone who's obeying Christ or obeying the Father. But that's not what we get at all. Instead, we don't just get words, we get action. We get obedience. Instead of empty words, I love this, Joshua jumps right to obeying in almost in the exact same manner as God told him to go over the Jordan. He says, go throughout the camp. Joshua hears God's word and obeys. And he tells the officers to begin the process of going over the Jordan by going through the camp declare the commandment of the Lord. This little section here shows us something very important. It shows us God's, I mean, uh, Joshua's obedience to God. But more than that, it also shows us the rightful use of divine authority. The command given to Joshua to find, the, it, it, again, finds its source of authority not in himself. The source of authority is God himself, not Joshua. He's not the man. He is God's leader and put in a position of great responsibility. But it is God's word that he hands out. 
Joshua does not have any of his own authority, but again, he commands God's commands to the people to command the other people. You see even in these words, command and obey and commanded over and over, both the verb and the noun, that this is about divine authority that's being passed down. Joshua obeys. He does it very succinctly, and right in words here we see that he obeys God. But now, by the authority of God, he turns to the people of Israel and he calls them to also obey, that they would do the same thing that they have been commanded to do. Brother and sister, how about you? You hear God's word probably every day. If you open the Bible, you see God's word. If you talk to a brother about anything in spiritual terms and they encourage you, you hear God's word. Perhaps you listen to some podcasts that speak the truth. Or perhaps you just, maybe it's just on once a week, just here right now. You hear the truth from God's word. How do you respond? Is your response to say, I want to obey and have a heart that would follow after you? Is our response like Joshua's? Do we obey? Joshua is showing us the proper way to respond to God's commandment. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we should also obey the Father. Remember, it was Jesus who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's not a separate thing. They actually go hand in hand. That will be part of a believer's life. Those who love him will obey him. God's commands are not just good advice. They are words of righteous life for us. They are not um, duties or uh, things that we have to endure. They are joy to those who love Jesus. We realize it gives us a real picture of what life is like. And it shows us then to have a relationship with Him and how to treat the rest of the world around us. Love God and love your neighbor. He obeys. Do we also then obey? Let's move on to verse 12 through 15. So first he talks to the officers of the people, right? But now he turns his attention to a very specific group within Israel. He speaks to these eastern tribes. Let's pick up in verse 12. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Now hold on a second. Why is he only talking to three tribes or two and a half tribes? What about Asher or Zebulun or the other ones? Why is he directing speech just to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? Well, well, let's read on for a moment. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. What, what does he mean by this land? Well, frankly, what he's talking about is they're on the, the shoreline of the Jordan, and they're on the east side, and he's talking about the land that they're camping in right now. For us to properly understand this interaction, we need to go back and actually tell a different story. We need to go back to Numbers 32. It's been 40 years in the wilderness. The people have been wandering around, and now they're starting to come out. God begins to move them toward Israel, um, excuse me, out of, the, out of the wilderness and towards the promised land. Let me show you a map real quick. This might be helpful. Now, this is not necessarily the best map, but it's clear so you can see it probably from each part of the, the, the auditorium here. This is a map of, of, of Israel, especially in this time. On the left-hand side, you see a big, that light blue body of water. That's the Mediterranean Sea. Then you have all the different colors. That's uh, Israel. At the top, in the middle, right next to East Manasseh, the left of that, you'll see a little round one, kind of roundish, weird shape there, kind of like an avocado. That 
is called the Sea of Kenareth. Well, that would, we would kind of know that as the Sea of Galilee, if you know anything about the New Testament. Uh, if you look down further on that other weird-shaped one at the bottom next to Reuben, that is the Salt Sea, or some of you may know it as the Dead Sea. In between these two bodies, you'll see kind of a, looks like a boundary line between them. That is the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley running through, connecting these two bodies of water. It is that natural barrier that we talked about to the land. It's a natural boundary. Along the way to the promised land, God is defeating kings left and right, flexing his strong arm, and he is bringing to fruition his promises to his people. They're seeing who he is. And on this journey, they're about here. Here, I'll show you one second. In this red dot, this is where they're at right now. They're steadily moving towards an inheritance. They're getting closer and closer to going into this land. But something happens in Numbers 31 and 32 that no one quite is ready for, including Moses. After destroying the Midianites and dividing all the spoil properly according to what God had told them to do, the people of Reuben and Gad approached the Israelite leadership, Moses specifically. They approached them and they ask for the land that the nation has just conquered. They have much livestock, apparently more than everyone else, or else that wouldn't have been mentioned. And they realize where they've just conquered is a place that is good for livestock. It must have had good water, and it must have been able to have plenty of vegetation to be able to support it. And they come to him and say this to Moses, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. They ask if they can settle in this newly conquered land instead of going across the Jordan, the promised land. And Moses is furious. He says to them, basically something along the lines of this, really, you're going to do the same things that your fathers did at Kadesh Barnea? Now, now we have to talk about a different story, okay? So Kadesh Barnea is the place that the 12 spies came back. And the 10 spies tell them, we can't go into this land. We are not able to conquer this land that God has promised to us. You should not do this. We'd, we would not advise us to go into this land. We think it's a terrible idea. I mean, we look like grasshoppers next to the others. The unbelieving report of these spies showed that they did not trust God. They were not believing. And so they did not obey. It's amazing how their lack of faith always leads to disobedience. The unbelieving report shows their true character. And the result for Israel is disastrous, if you remember this. For 40 years, this whole generation is now going to wander through the wilderness and die. The only two people who are going to make it into the new land are Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else is going to die. And the 10 guys that came back to give the, the uh, evil report, they're given a plague and they die before the Lord disastrous results because of their unbelief and their keeping a group from going into the land. This is why Moses is so hot, so angry. He knows that if Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh do not cross the Jordan and take the land, that it will thoroughly discourage the nation of Israel and encourage them really to disobey God. Moses says this back to them, and behold, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. 
Moses says that for Reuben, Gad, Manasseh to stay on the east side of the Jordan is that they are turning from following God. It is a serious event. It would be a breach of covenant faithfulness, and it would destroy the people of Israel. Look at that last phrase he says there. It's crazy. And you will destroy all this people. Well, obviously they don't want that. That's not what they're out for. So they respond. They say this. We will build some sheepfolds, and we will build some cities, and our children and our livestock will stay here. But we will take up arms, ready to go to battle before the people of Israel, and we will fight with them until the rest of Israel has inherited their land. Moses responds. But it's very important to hear his distinction. He's more concerned about the relationship with Yahweh than he is about the relationship to their brothers. It's certainly important. But listen how he says this. I'm going to read here, uh, starting in verse 20, going down in, in Numbers 32. He says this about if they will come and fight for their brothers. If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Moses allows this deal to go through, but he does so under a strict condition that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh fulfill their commitment to Yahweh, that they be true to the covenant and go through with their brothers. On the map, uh, you'll see that designated area. I'll go back for a moment. You'll see the three designated areas on the right of, of, of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's this deal that now we're talking about when we get to Joshua. All that was to help us understand, jo I think I spent way more time in numbers this week than I did actually in Joshua, because it all hangs on understanding these events. These are what Moses promised then to these people, and they settled here. When we get here, it's Joshua now referring to that deal that was made. He now says to them, Joshua 1, 12 to 15, so let's do this. Verse 12, and to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, <clears throat> saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Joshua addresses the eastern tribes. He calls on them to make good on their promises and pledges to God and their brothers. Basically, we just saw Joshua obey, but now he is turning to these eastern tribes and says, it's time for you to obey. That's what he's calling them here to, is to obedience. On our first reading, though, we may not see the tension or the thickness here, all the history that's led up to this moment. But I want you to see that it's thick. There's a lot of tension after Joshua has stated this. At the end of verse 15, we're all waiting to see what happens. Here at the beginning of the book, 
we have a legitimate opportunity for the nation of Israel to be split on the two sides of the Jordan River and therefore to be destroyed. When Joshua commands these tribes to step forward to do their full obligation to the Lord and Israel, there's a very real concern that they could say, nah, we don't really want to do that. It sounds difficult. We, we don't really want to do that. Remember that this deal was not struck with Joshua. This deal was struck with Moses. And now Joshua kind of comes in as the new kid in town in one sense, and he says, remember what you promised to Moses and to your God. And so now we have this opportunity. What are they going to do? They had all received their inheritance, the good parts, the reward. But now it was time to see if they would do the work, if they would do what they said that they promised they would do, if they would now roll up their sleeves and go to battle alongside of God and his people against the Canaanites. Would they do the hard stuff now? Would they trust God? Would they do the same thing that God told them to do as he gave them their land? And there's a lot of difficulty ahead in battle. We have a real potential for a very different type of war right here at Joshua 1. We have the potential to see a civil war break out in chapter 1. If Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh say no to Joshua, we're probably looking either at civil war or for some type of divine judgment on the leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Why? Because unity and covenant faithfulness go hand in hand. It's so important that we get this. God did not make individual covenants with each tribe. One for Judah, one for Gad, one for... No, he made it with the nation of Israel. Not only would these eastern tribes have gone back on their promise to Moses, but more importantly, they would have betrayed their God, Yahweh. What happened back on Sinai, they're turning their back on it and saying, no, nah, we're not part of that group anymore. We're our own people. This rebellion then we know would lead to judgment. Back in Numbers 32, when Moses had this discussion with these leaders, it was important that the eastern tribes complete the work of conquering all the land, not just part of it, but conquering all the land alongside of all God's people. Moses knew that disunity, especially that which would which discourage people from going into another territory, would rip the nation apart. In that incident, he called the people a brood of sinful men. He references back to a time where there were 10 people who decided to come back and discourage the nation from obeying God. Talk about terrible leadership. The exact opposite, where Joshua and Caleb said, yes, let us go into the land and conquer according to what God has said. They didn't deny that they were like grasshoppers, but what they affirmed was that God could do it. Where these 10 unfaithful, wicked servants instead came back and said, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't obey God. It's crazy to do so. He referenced back this, these unfaithful spies who did not trust God, but instead actually discouraged God's people. Joshua is calling these tribes to obey their covenant-keeping God and to go in armed and ready to lead the nation into battle against Canaan. The question for us then, as we read this, we really should be here and saying, will they obey? Are they going to do it? Or are we going to have another Kadesh Barnea? Are we going to have another time where it splits the nation or sends them into the wilderness? They've got the land. I mean, these guys have established the sheepfolds. They've established these small cities for them to, to dwell in. I mean, the next step is like really hard and ugly and costly. War. 
And now we kind of wait. Will they obey Yahweh? As we hold our breath, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh give their answer. And it's so much better than yes. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is a theologically rich statement of affirmation and also support for their new leader. These tribes respond in their affirmative. Yes, we'll do this. But if we were to listen carefully, it's way more than just yes. In fact, they don't really say yes. They frame the whole answer in terms of obedience to the God-ordained leader, Joshua. Did you see how many times I said you or your, you, you? They're pointing back to Joshua saying, we will follow you. We will obey your commands. Why? Because they understand that Joshua's authority is not of his own. It is God's authority, and God ordains that means of leadership. And they understand that they then are to obey God by obeying Joshua. They recognize that God has given them a leader who was supposed to be obeyed like they did Moses. This leader's authority has its source, like I said before, in God. Notice how many times he says command or commanded or obey or disobey. Again, all this is showing that the, that the ultimate authority is coming from the real source, which is God himself. Further, note that if these commands are not obeyed, how they responded, the punishment would be death. Death is no small thing. Now, we understand dissenters usually get executed. That's, that's normal. We understand that. But remember, the striking out against God's image here is because you have rebelled against God. In other words, the commands that have been handed down must be followed because they are Yahweh's commands. And we understand even more so that they must execute someone because they've rebelled against God himself if they haven't obeyed. Brothers and sisters, how many of you have acted as Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? Have you recognized and submitted to God-ordained authorities in your life? Our culture is dominated by individualism and a striking out against anything that would be authoritarian over them. We want freedom from all authority. That's wicked. Authority is God-given. Authority is from Him. Your government is one of those authorities. As much as we may struggle with people, don't forget Romans 13. It is God who has put the king there. I know this is a hard thing to, to handle. But do not disrespect our God in the way that he chooses to work. Clear of the things that would be sinful, obviously, we are called to respect and obey those who are ruling. So I would challenge you to pray for our leadership, to thank God for steadying his hand of providence, even in times that are so difficult where God is still in control. The church, and specifically shepherds, are another one of those authorities. I know this is getting a little close to home right here, but I will ask you this because I think it's an important question. 
Have you placed yourself under the God-given leadership of a group of shepherds, pastors, and willingly submitted yourself to their leadership and their care? That is God's work. We have no flag to fly here about how great we are as elders. Remember that it is God's given authority. That is His work. Have you submitted yourself to the Lord, the chief shepherd himself, and joined the body of Christ through baptism and regular covenant faithfulness to the body of Christ? If not, I'd simply ask you to take a look at Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh as they properly model the right attitude toward leadership and understand that it is derived from God himself. Now, these tribes understand that Joshua, though, is just a man. He is not divine. They understand that. They know that his authority isn't his. It is, like I said, derivative. It's God's authority. It's not Joshua's. And so they also speak back to him as a man. And they say this in the middle of 17. They say to Joshua, Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And then catch what he says at the end. He does this wonderful, I think, military, covenantal motto that God himself gave to Joshua. He says, only be strong and courageous. Those are the words of God. And now Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are putting it back to Joshua and say, you must do this. We understand the enormous responsibility that it is to be a leader. And so we call you then also to recognize and obey your master and maker, Joshua. You also must do these things. This part of this response is, I mean, it's clearly pointed back to Joshua. In this statement, they are affir affirming Joshua's leadership, but they are also calling him to heed the words of God and to obey. They're basically saying all the stuff that happened in 2 through 9, that whole discussion from God to Joshua, they're saying, hear, hear, only be strong and courageous. All the stuff that he said to do, do it, Joshua. Obey. Lead us in obeying the law and let it always be on your lips. Always let it be your meditation. Be the leader that God has called you to be, Joshua. So they both obey and they call their brother, Joshua, to do the things that God has called him to do. In other words, it's an act of submission and support. Calling Joshua to be strong and courageous in all that God has given him to do. These tribes get it. They know that Joshua's leadership and his courage are derived from the Lord's presence and that obedience to God then is the key to the success of this endeavor to cross into this land and to have prosperity. So now we come to this state and we understand, we're, we're kind of ready to go into chapter two. We understand that all of Israel is together in this endeavor and they are now ready to move forward with all of the things that may be insecurities, whether or not these two or two and a half tribes are going to break off and do their own thing, no. They have called them to covenant faithfulness, and we see unity again. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll look at the spy mission play out as they prepare to cross the Jordan. We'll see a narrative kind of move along a little bit more. But for now, we have a unified people prepared to obey God and their ordained, God-ordained leader. I want to close with two main points. From, from looking at this. What, is, what should we learn here? The first thing is that Joshua is given divine authority, but he is also called to obey that authority. He is not above it. He is then called to be, in one sense, the best obeyer. 
If you remember last week, we talked about him be strong and courageous to be careful to do all the law of Moses. That's his, like that is the most important part of that first section, that he would do that, that he would obey God in that. In verse 10 and 11, it is by divine authority that God has given Joshua the command to move into the land. Later on, we'll see it's by divine authority that Joshua would command the people to do the law and all the specific things that had to go along with it. It's by divine authority that Joshua will call the eastern tribes and to make good on the promises and pledges that they made to Moses. And it is because of that divine authority that the Israelites can obey with confidence, knowing that their obedience to their leadership is obedience to God. It is a derived authority from God himself. And if they will obey, that God will lead them to prosperity in this mission. Joshua is not all about his own leadership. He is not tweeting about how great he is. Instead, we see him showing us what obedience really looks like. He shows a submission to the divine will. Joshua loves God, and it's evidenced, how? By his obedience. Man, I hope that would be said of us, that if we love our Savior, that we will keep his commandments. In this way, Joshua gives us a picture of the Joshua to come, the better Joshua. It was Jesus who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, but he was no hypocrite. I love this. John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Of all people, he was divine. He could have done what he wanted to do. He submits himself to the Father and obeys. Listen to what he says. I do as the Father has commanded me. Is that not the same language here? Understanding true authority? And as he does so, he is then the best obeyer. <laughs> wow. And we know then, because of Jesus' complete obedience, that he alone could be our righteousness. Joshua dies. Joshua is painted as a good guy. Don't get me wrong. He's a, he's a wonderful leader. And I think he obeys well, but he is not Jesus. He can't be. He never has righteousness. Not only that he can pay for our sin, he can give us positive righteousness. Joshua couldn't do that. But he shows us what it is like for a leader to both be under divine authority and to give that divine authority out. That is Jesus. But Jesus is so much better than him. So he alone is the one that's able to atone for our sin because of his obedience. Praise God then for the better Joshua, Jesus Christ. Secondly, unity goes hand in hand with covenant faithfulness. Let me explain. This is not one for one specifically here, but what I want, to see is, want us to see is that God's people were bound together by virtue of their covenant relationship with God. I mentioned earlier that it wasn't this tribe had one covenant with God and a different tribe, a different covenant over here. It was God's people together, bound together in that unity in the covenant they were making with God himself. And so the eastern tribes held the potential to break that apart and declare the rebellion against God. But instead, in this instance, but instead they did not break apart. In this instance, they submitted and remained faithful. Now, throughout the scriptures, we're going to see other times where we watch them go away and break apart. And you know what's going to happen? Destruction and judgment. But in this instance, we see them have unity. 
and we see them be able to move forward as they obey Yahweh. If I can kind of make this point, this unity then of obedience will, do, will result in prosperity, what we talked about before. Obedience is not something that we just have to do. It is so much better for us, and it will result in life. It is right and good. Division in here was a, was a problem. Division was con- constantly a sign of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Division would mean discouragement and the falling away of God's people and the inevitability of punishment. Brothers and sisters, let us then also strive for unity. May we not be in factions. May we not choose to hang out with this group or upset about something else and that there would be factions between us. If you have something against your brother or sister, go to them. Talk about it. Repent of your sin and plead the grace of Jesus Christ that he would heal your relationship. There ought never to be those things between us. We know that there is because we are on this side of heaven and this side of eternity. And we realize we need Jesus. That's the whole reason we have to have Jesus to save us, to sanctify us, to make us more like him. But don't miss this. There ought to be unity between us. And as we strive on as a group, as a family together, as the body of Christ, we must have unity. And it's not a cheap unity. I'm not talking about kumbaya, we all just kind of gather together, and if we can allow people in the same room, we're going to be okay. I'm talking about real unity that deals with conflict, that deals with sin with one another, and repents and submits to one another and asks God to work in our midst so that we would have real unity, that which comes only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as I call you this, I say there's only one real way for this to happen. Submission to our Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, the one who has the ability to change our hearts. Praise God. So brothers and sisters, let us love and obey him together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace, your constant grace, giving us your word. It is sweet to us. It shows us who you are, and it reminds us of every different facet of life and that you are in control. God, I pray that we would submit to your leadership, your love, your care for us, and that we would not just do what we want to do, but rather that we'd obey. We would hear you speak, and we would obey. Give our hearts that would give us hearts that love you, God. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.